Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we now have our Bibles open, we pray for your help. Help us to pay attention to what your word says. Father, I pray that each of us in here would know and be convinced that your decrees are trustworthy, that we can commit our whole lives listening to them, being instructed by them, being guided, Lord, by your decrees, your word. Help us to know that you have the words of eternal life. So, Lord, may we pay attention this morning. May we listen. May you help us. Continue, Lord, to shape our hearts by your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as humans, we are certainly interesting creatures. We both long for someone to tell us what to do, and we also hate it when someone else tries to tell us what to do. Some of us are inclined a little more one way or the other, but that's how it is with us. We both desire and disdain the commands of others over us. Whether or not we want the guidance of others often depends upon our circumstances. When we believe we are under a threat, that is when we long for someone to tell us what to do, someone we think knows how to respond to this, who knows what we ought to do to be safe. When we feel weak and vulnerable, that is when we really desire someone to tell us what we should do. Remember the first few days and even weeks of the COVID-19 threat back in 2020. We really didn't know what we were dealing with, so our nation was longing for our leaders to tell us what to do. I mean, we would actually watch the White House press briefings every day, even the press briefings from our governor here in Nebraska, to learn any new information or guidance of what we should or shouldn't do. When we believe we are under threat, we long for someone over us to tell us what to do. And as we remember from those days, most people did what they were told. But as we all realize now, once the threat has passed or once we came to understand the threat really wasn't as serious as we were led to believe, we, we then tend to reject those who are trying to tell us what to do. Another example we, we could use is when you are driving. You're driving and you're pretty sure you know where you are going and someone else who is riding along with you tries to tell you which turns to make. Well, nothing grinds at our gears 
more than backseat drivers when we are driving our, our cars. But, but what if we really are lost? What if we really don't know where to go next, which, which turn to make? What if we did take a wrong turn and really, you know, don't know how to get to our destination? Well, then, it is in those moments that we definitely long for someone to tell us what to do, to tell us where to go. And we're grateful for those people. So that helps us then to understand the two main responses to the word of the Lord in the scriptures. We either respond to the word of the Lord by rejecting it or by embracing it. And it often depends upon whether or not we truly believe we need it or not. Whether or not we believe that we are under threat and thus depend upon someone who can help us, who can show us the way. So what do you believe about your situation in this world? Who do you believe the one speaking here in the Bible really is? These are questions that this short little psalm addresses for us and what we will be thinking about together in this sermon from Psalm 93. So the main theme that I have over this psalm is that the Lord is king over all and rules all things by his word. The Lord is king over all and rules all things by his word. Psalm 93 is the beginning uh, of a short section in the Psalms focused on the Lord reigning as king, and it goes, the section goes through Psalm 99. There is a direct reference in each of those Psalms to the Lord reigning as king, with the exception of the next Psalm, Psalm 94, which focuses mostly on the Lord as judge which, of course, could also imply kingship as well. Just another aspect of his reign as king is that he will judge. Psalm 93, then, is the introduction to these royal psalms, and it focuses uh, on three main things. First of all, the king's throne, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, the king's power, verses 3 and 4. And finally, the king's word in verse 5. The king's throne, the king's power, and the king's Word. Let's look first at the king's throne, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty, the Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall, not, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. After hearing these opening verses, again, you might be thinking that, well, they are much more about the king's robes than the king's throne, and you might have a good argument for that. How the Lord is robed or clothed is definitely emphasized in this first verse of the psalm, but the significance of the stability of the king's throne is like a pillar that holds up this entire psalm. Let's first consider the very first declaration here. The Lord reigns there at the beginning of verse 1. Notice that the Lord there is printed in all caps, all capital letters, in your Bibles, so it refers to the very name of God in the original Hebrew. Uh, the psalmist is naming who the king is. Yahweh reigns. Jehovah reigns. Yahweh is king. 
The name Yahweh is used throughout this psalm. So for the original readers of this psalm, this is declaring to them that the God who revealed himself to their father Abraham, the God who delivered them from Egypt through Moses, the God who then revealed himself to Moses on the mountain and gave his law to them and made a covenant with them, their covenant God is the one who is king. He is the one who reigns. He doesn't only reign over them, but reigns over the whole world. Their covenant Lord, the one who has a personal relationship with them and has chosen them as his people, he reigns. He is their king. Again, the other psalms in this section repeat this and make similar declarations. Turn over to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 and verse 3. For the Lord, that's Yahweh again, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And then verse, 90, uh, verse 10 of chapter 96. 96.10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Sounds very similar to what we just read in Psalm 93. And then down to, to Psalm 97, verse 1 of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. And then Psalm 98. Psalm 98 and verse 6. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, Yahweh, the Lord. And then Psalm 99 the last of these royal psalms, verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. So it's clear from these psalms that the Lord wanted his people to know him and to honor him as king. When we think of the Lord, we are to think of him as sovereign king, high above, reigning over his creation. That is who he is. When verse 1 says he is robed, it's not saying that God is, is actually you know, wearing a literal piece of clothing that is very majestic looking with, with a belt around it. No, no, the psalm that this, the psalmist here is just using poetic imagery to help us recognize the Lord as a king, as a majestic king, as a glorious king. Kings were known for their marvelous robes that they would wear. It's what made them stand out from others as king and robes surrounded the body. And so it would help to think of these statements here as the Lord is enveloped, he's just enveloped in majesty and glory, and he has armed himself with strength and power. And our attention is then turned to the world at the end of verse 1, and the world is being compared with the Lord's throne then in verse 2. Yes, the world is established, it shall, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. 
So the world is firmly established and the Lord's throne is also firmly established. It speaks of stability and sturdiness, something that cannot be moved. That is the world. And that is also the Lord's throne. And what this is saying to us is that the world is sturdy and stable. The world cannot be moved because... The Lord's throne cannot be moved. The stability of the world depends upon the stability of the Lord's throne, of his reign as king. We can trust that the world will not spin off into the sun because it's being held up by the sovereign authority of the Lord. And don't forget The Bible is well aware that the earth is just a small part of a far, far greater universe. The psalmist could have said something like, the whole universe is established. You are enthroned over the whole entire creation. All the galaxies, all the stars, all the planets, all the heavens and the earth. That would have been truly and probably more impressive for us 21st century Bible readers, but our, our psalmist doesn't do that. Instead, he is focusing on the world as the Lord's kingdom. This world is the focus of the Lord's reign. Out of all the worlds out there, this world gets his attention. The world that we inhabit, the world that he created for man, his attention is here particularly focused on his beloved people, those whom he has claimed for himself. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. As Psalm 34 says it. So we're going to take great comfort in what these two verses are declaring to us. And the world is not just some, some random planet where, where by some incredible chance event just happened to be a planet perfectly suited for life. And then by another incredible accident of chance, after a few million years, some some molecules, you know, bounce together at just the right time and in just the right way and and, in some pond and, and, and the first microscopic living being began to develop. And then from that, again, after millions and millions of years of fits and starts, eventually that living organism well, began walking on the earth. Then after another million years or so, those living beings evolved into the superbly intelligent creatures we now refer to as people. With minds, wills, and personalities who are able to intelligently reason with each other and figure out how to communicate with one another through a little metal glass rectangle, instantaneously from one side of the world to the other. And of course, who knows how long life is going to continue like it has on this world and, and just what may come next. No, no, when we, when we hear this from God's word, we are to see and recognize nothing in creation is random. The world is established because the Lord established it. That's what kings do. 
They established their kingdom. The Lord established the world, and so it shall never be moved because your throne, O Lord, is established from of old, that is, before there even was a world. He was on his throne. You are from everlasting, it says. The Lord reigns. He is reigning now. He always has reigned as king, and he will reign forever and ever. So take courage, my friends. The Lord is on his throne. Secondly, the king's power, there in verses 3 and 4, the king's power. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. The psalmist goes from the world, being the realm that makes up the Lord's kingdom, uh, to one of the most chaotic and deadly aspects of his kingdom in the world. Now, we may not think of water as being that much of a threat. We love water here in Nebraska. We wish we had a lot more of it. We pray for the Lord to give us more water. But to the people who live near the Mediterranean Sea and who have all been taught the history of the Lord's judgment upon the earth through the flood, they feared water. They feared the floods. They feared the seas. In that part of the world, in ancient history, the waters were an unpredictable, often chaotic part of the world that you feared immensely. They all knew of those who ventured out onto the waters in order to fish or in order to engage in trade who never came back home. To them, it was like the waters swallowed them up. If you did venture out on the seas and a storm came up, you didn't have much of an opportunity to survive. You were at the very mercy of the chaotic, unpredictable waters of the sea. Now, we enjoy water. We, we take vacations you know, for the sole purpose of either being on the water or spending our days on a beach by the water. That's not something we read about anyone doing in the Bible in that time and place. I have friends who served as missionaries in Oman uh, on the far eastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. They lived in a city on the coast of the Indian Ocean there, which had miles and miles of beaches. They had a house not, not far from the beach, and they would send us pictures of themselves spending time on the beaches there, camping, uh, sunbathing, sitting up uh, next to a, a campfire there on the beach, relaxing, you know, swimming in the, in the waters there. And it amazed me that in those pictures that they sent us, it always seemed like they were the only ones on the beach. Like it was just some private beach that they were enjoying. No one else was allowed on the beach. It looked like they had the beach all to themselves. And so I asked them about this when they came back to visit, and, and, and they kind of smiled and laughed and explained, well, no one goes to the beach there. No one does. In fact, when some of their friends and neighbors in Oman heard that, that they were going to the beach and even wading into the water and doing a little swimming, they were horrified. 
They believe the waters were in, inhabited by demons. To them, the sea is a scary place that you avoid. You don't go to the sea. It's not just dangerous, it is evil. And that's similar to the mindset of the original readers of the biblical literature. The waters and the seas were frightful places in creation that were often deadly. They, they were definitely uncontrollable by man. I mean, who could stop the floods? Who could control the seas when you were on this little ramshackle of a boat in the middle of a windstorm? No one could. This was just something man was helpless against. And so how comforting for them to know that even in the midst of the floods or the mighty waves of the sea in the midst of a terrifying storm, they can trust that the Lord is on his throne, he's over it all, and he is far more powerful than the most chaotic, than the most dangerous of waters that they have ever come across. The Lord as king is able to stop the floods. The Lord as king is able to calm the mighty waves of the sea. What a comforting thing for us to ponder this morning. No matter how chaotic our lives get, no matter what storms we have to pass through in our lives, that the Lord is on his throne, the Lord is mightier than they are, and we are the ones that he is looking to, that he's caring for in the midst of the storms. The one major event in salvation history that we do not look back to as much as God's people did in this time before Christ was their deliverance from Egypt. That is their salvation story. They look back on the deliverance from Egypt as this mighty work of God making uh, them his people and revealing his greatness and his glory and his mastery over their enemies. The Lord revealed his power and authority over the most powerful king and nation of the time as well as their gods in Egypt, but probably the greatest and most memorable part of that story was when the Lord showed his great power and might over the waters of the Red Sea, controlling them, parting them, holding them back so that his people could then pass through the sea walking on dry ground. The Lord showed his people and the people of Egypt and then all those in all the world who heard of it as the story was then spread rapidly that he is mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. But why are the seas so chaotic and fearful to God's people? Why do God's people need to be so concerned about the floods lifting up their roaring? Or the question could be put this way. If the Lord is on the throne and the world is his kingdom, why are there things such as storms and floods? Why are there deadly and destructive events that happen in the world that seem so out of control? Why do people in Florida have to deal with hurricanes like they did again this week? Why did an entire city of people in Maui have to endure a fire that burned almost everything down and killed so many people? Why do we here in Nebraska have to fear storms and tornadoes and the occasional flood with all the destruction that they leave in their paths? 
I mean, if the Lord is reigning over this world, why do all these terrible things happen? I've heard critics challenge this, this biblical teaching, saying, well, if your God really is reigning as king, he sure is doing a lousy job of it, isn't he? And that is when we need to take seriously what the scriptures reveal to us about the condition of our world. The Lord is king. We are his subjects. But his subjects are in rebellion against him. At the fall of man, in Genesis 3, when our first parents rebelled against their king and sinned against the Lord, the Lord pronounced in judgment a curse upon the world. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. So the ground is cursed. This world is under the curse that sin and rebellion brought into it. And nothing reveals the reality of this curse more than when destructive terrors come upon the ground. Tsunamis, droughts, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, deadly lightning strikes causing wildfires, or diseases, cancer, neurological disorders, all bringing about death one by one or hundreds and even thousands at a time. Terrible things. They're each revealing to us how awful how devastating our sin really is. Because without them, we would have no clue how terrible it is for those made in God's image to blaspheme and dishonor him day after day after day. He has subjected the creation to futility, the Bible says. It is in bondage to corruption all because of our sin, of our rebellion, all because we have rejected the Lord as our king and did not consider his word to be trustworthy and we went our own way. And that way is death and destruction. And we see that over and over again. He's showing us that. He's revealing that to us. If only we'd have eyes to see it. If only it would humble us like it is meant to. And that leads us then to verse 5, the king's word. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The Lord rules all things by his word. This has been the case since the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Even before God made the woman in, in the creation account, we see the Lord giving commands to the first man, the first man, Adam. Genesis 2.16 tells us that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Right away we are shown just what kind of king the Lord God is. He is a king who gives. He's a king who gives. He is a king who provides for his subjects. He is a king who protects his subjects, alerting them of what would cause them trouble, warning them of what would destroy them. But when it really mattered, when man was put to the test, they ultimately rejected the word of their king as untrustworthy. 
and they did the very thing that the Lord warned them not to do by his word. And as we already mentioned, sin, death, and destruction came into the world. Now the world can be a scary place to live. But even though his subjects rejected his word as untrustworthy, still that has not kept the king from declaring his decrees from his throne to the people he has chosen to know him. On Mount Sinai, a few weeks after the Lord revealed his power in subduing the Red Sea and saving his people, he spoke to them his law. He gave his decrees to his people. And it was recorded in the scriptures and preserved so we still have what he said in print today. And he has revealed far more than that so that we might know his will, that we might know what he desires from us, so that we might know the way to eternal life. So how important then is paying attention to and abiding by the words of our king? We've already seen a negative example of his word's importance from Adam and Eve in not trusting it. Let's see a positive example, a much more positive example that we can learn from being the second Adam, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, who when he was also tested by Satan in the wilderness to turn away from the Lord, to, 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 to not trust the Lord's word to him. The Lord Jesus trusted and followed God's word perfectly and declared there that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Lord Jesus believed that ignoring God's word is deadly, that we cannot truly live without knowing his word trusting his word, and abiding by his word, which is what he did throughout his life and ministry on the earth. Following the Lord's word is such an essential thing for us to do that we have the resurrected Lord Jesus when he declares to his disciples in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which sounds a lot like what we read about Yahweh, the Lord, God, in Psalm 93, and in the other Psalms as being king, as, as reigning, as about to take his place on the throne at his father's right hand, high and, and lifted up. So what was the decree of King Jesus to his disciples on that day? Well, he commanded them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do what? To observe all that I have commanded you. Observe all of my words. So what we see in Psalm 93, verse 5, and in Matthew, Matthew 28 from the Lord Jesus, is that the Lord is a speaking God who requires his people to be a listening people, who as their first duty toward their king would be to come before him ready to listen to his decrees and to trust what he says, and to show their trust and loyalty to him by doing all that he commands. So tell me this morning, is that something you are doing? Are you someone who's listening? Are you someone who is seeking 
what God says, and then abiding by what his word has declared. I wonder, do you recognize your vulnerability and thus long for the king's word to tell you what to do? Or are you one who, who still just ignores it, disdains it even, really doesn't believe that you are under any threat of judgment at all? Psalm 93 then ends with this statement, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. For holiness adorns your house, O Lord. Here is a description of the people of God who make up his household. They are to be holy, for the Lord is a holy king, and he's seeking a holy people to fill his household forevermore. And of course, herein lies our our greatest problem. We are not a holy people. We also don't like it when someone tells us what to do, and the Lord tells us what to do. Our rebellious hearts lead us to love that which is evil rather than what is pure. We willingly enslave ourselves to sin and to Satan rather than submitting ourselves under the good and loving decrees of the Lord. And therefore, we are not at all different from the Israelites were in 1 Samuel chapter 8, who rejected the Lord as their king there and demanded a king just like all the other nations had. A king which the prophet Samuel warned them would take and take and take from them. And like them, we reject God as our king for a king who takes rather than be subject to the Lord, who is a king who gives. But there is still hope for us. There is still hope for you. For the king who reigns in heaven gave his only son to die on the cross so that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. We have been given by our king the opportunity to repent and turn away from our sin and self-righteousness in order to follow the king who gave his life for us on the cross and who has promised to one day return to this world in order to establish his kingdom on the earth, in order to give us the kingdom. That is when he will put all the chaos and conflict and the terrors of this cursed world to rest once and for all. That is when we, along with all the creation that was subjected to to futility, will experience a redemption of our bodies. But only if you put your hope in him, only if you have listened to his word and found him to be trustworthy. So verse 5 says here, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And so, are you listening to his decrees? Are you listening to and obeying his words in the power of the Spirit who dwells within you? Or have you rejected the words of the Lord and just you're living according to your own power, your own strength, and you're living in a way that will soon be judged? 
I want to get personal here. Are you trusting the Lord's word? I plead with you this morning, don't ignore his word anymore. Embrace his words. Recognize them as life-giving. Trust them and follow them all the way to the kingdom to come. Let us pray. Yes, our Father in heaven, we recognize our great need to trust your word. I pray this morning that everyone here, especially those who know in their hearts they have not been listening to your word, they've been doing whatever they've wanted to do with their lives, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would humble them, they would come under conviction, and that they would repent, and they would begin today to listen to your words and to find them trustworthy to find them to be life-giving for them. We ask you to do this great work by your Spirit. In the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.